Hello and welcome to Landings with a Flare, the podcast where we supplement and support flight training. This is Captain Teresa. This conversation was recorded on the audio platform called Clubhouse. You will likely hear some variation in audio quality as speakers tune in from around the world. We hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Welcome aboard. Welcome everyone as we begin our series on how to start flight training. We're going to start just really generally by talking about why someone would want to be a pilot. That's a really easy softball kind of question. And then we're going to give a basic general outline of how you should get started with really foundational steps. Then after we kind of covered the basics, We'll go deeper and we'll talk about other requirements like age requirements, citizenship requirements, and things like that. So we're going to start very basic. I'll just ask, why, why are some reasons that someone would want to become a pilot? Let's start with Enrique. Because you got beaten by the aviation bug. Yes. Sometimes it's almost hard to explain, but a lot of people from a young age just know that they want to be pilots. Yeah, but, but, but if you want to talk a little bit more serious, sometimes kids get the fascination um, about aviation because human beings were not meant to fly. So pretty much we are challenging um, our whole biology. And there's the fascination behind the, the profession, especially because Penan brought that whole fascination um, with the uniforms and the whole glamorous thing when they did back in the in the beginning. So there's that. And some people are attracted to, to this profession because of this. Very well said. There is a certain glamour to it. And there's a really interesting history on that, how it became so glamorous. But even before it was almost marketed as being glamorous. Human beings for most of human civilization have looked up at the sky and looked at the birds and said, wow, wouldn't that be fun if we could just move through the air so freely? And of course, there are lifestyle reasons that pilots, people want to be pilots. There's the prestige, there's the challenge. I mean, it's partly just knowing that you accomplished something really challenging And also, there is a certain amount of personal development. You know, flying is character building, which is another way of saying that it's hard. But because of that, we can all learn and grow as people and learn how to make good decisions and just challenge ourselves and keep our brains moving and working. Great. Any other thoughts or motivations on why to start flying? Tara. One of my motivations is the fact that a lot of people try to tell you, oh, that's too hard, and I don't think you'd be able to do that. Anytime someone tried to tell me that doing something like that would be too difficult for me, it makes me want to do it even more. I remember the first time I looked in a flight deck and I saw so many buttons. That made me want to learn everything. I do that just like I pick out my car. If it has a lot of buttons, I want it. But I love the fact that a lot of people look up to pilots, myself including. 
and it makes so many children so happy and just seeing the looks on their faces when they learn and someone tells them, oh, you're a pilot, and they try to explain uh, what goes on in the cockpit. That drew me to wanting to be a pilot and looking up to so many. Absolutely. I, I can relate to so many of the things that you said. For me, it was partly wanting to do something unique and adventurous, and then it was when people started telling me I couldn't. That is what just made me even more determined. You know, I had some very well-intentioned people even at different times, but actually that is what got me through some of the hardest parts in my career was people predicting that I couldn't do it. <laughs> and then there is a certain amount of leverage and just being able to be a hero for other people as well. Wonderful. Any final thoughts or motivations on why someone would become a pilot? We, we have a comment from Rax on the group chat. Rax said that he wanted to be a pilot because in his village there was a plane that went over and he always asked that they, they give us um, bubble gum. So pretty much the pilots um, were bribing him with candies when he was a kid. Oh, that's wonderful. When I was a kid, I loved bubble gum. <laughs> that might have been enough for me also. That's great. Yes. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about why to be a pilot. If you are listening right now, you probably know lots of reasons that you are interested in being a pilot. So we're going to start very generally about how to become a pilot. So the first thing that you need to do is what you are doing right now. It's called research. You want to learn a lot about the industry. You want to learn about your different options. Maybe you want to fly for a hobby. Maybe you want to do it for a career. Either way, it is complex, and there are a lot of good things that you should research first before you just jump in. The next thing you should do, step two, is interview and visit. And what we're talking about is interviewing and visiting flight schools and flight instructors. And we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail. But you do not want to assume that they're all equally good. As a matter of fact, you should be very careful and selective because your safety is at risk and also a lot of time and resources and a lot of just how you end up relating to aviation is very much based on how good your teacher is, how well-managed your flight school is. Then the third step after you interview and visit is to take some type of an introductory flight, which is not available at every school. It depends on where you are. But a lot of flight schools will have some kind of introductory flight called a discovery flight. And that can also be part of your process with interviewing and visiting. So let's talk a little bit more about why it's important to interview and visit different flight schools. Why shouldn't someone just pick the very first one that comes up on their internet search? I can answer that by, by doing a question. So let's say that if it was not a flight school, let's say that it was your internet service provider, for example, would you go and pick the first one or would you do your research and see what was the best fit for you? It's the same thing here. Go look for the options that you have around you and see what's the best fit for you. Because 
pretty much you are hiring a service. And you need to see what fits best with you, where you feel the most comfortable, where they can provide you the best service. You are pretty much interviewing people that you are going to quote-unquote hire to provide a service for you. Exactly. And it's a service that will have a huge impact on your life and that your life is depending on for safety. Dana. So another thing to consider is there's a lot that you can't get information wise from advertising. And, you know, once you're surrounded by the operation, the airplanes, you're seeing how things actually function. You get into an airplane, you see the actual condition of the airplane and how you're treated by the instructors and what type of priority that they make you for whatever you're going up for. There's a feel to it. It's just like dealing with any other service, any other thing that you're going to be involved with. And, and, you know, flight training is, is a big investment in time, in effort, in money and all that stuff. So it, it definitely is important that, you know, things feel right. And, you know, th- there's only a certain amount of trainer type aircraft that you're going to run into. You're probably going to run into three. It's probably going to be either a diamond, a Cessna or a hyper based operation as far as the fleet that, so you know, they're dealing with similar products, but it, just like if you go to a different airline, everybody operates basically the same fleet makeups, but every airline has a very distinctive feel. So you want to make sure that it, it's, it's very much a relationship. So you, you want to make sure that it's going to be right for you. Absolutely. And I'm going to say something. Oh, by the way, and also Cirrus aircraft are now quite popular as well. I'm going to say something that's controversial and might upset some people, but I'm saying it because I really want to put good information out there. I would argue that just based on my own experience, I would say that there are more flight schools that are managed poorly than flight schools that are managed very well. And that's kind of a surprise to people because pilots usually have such a good reputation. But the reason is that it's very difficult to run a flight school well. It's kind of a joke, but what people say is that the profit of a flight school is the small difference between two very large numbers. And what they mean is that even though flight schools tend to charge a lot for flight training, there are huge expenses, and it's actually a very complicated, difficult business to run. And then on top of that, what happens is when there are good people in place, one year the flight school might be good, but a few years later it might change again. And part of the reason is that the good people often do go up into better and better jobs in the industry, partly because of how the pay is set up and that kind of thing. So you don't want to just assume that the first flight school is a good one. You really do want to research it. Any other comments or questions? And you can argue with what I said as well if you'd like. Okay, so a few practical tips for researching. You can go and actually just ask them to set up a free appointment to interview them and uh, maybe a flight instructor in the school for a half hour or do sign up for an introductory flight and do something like that where you just maybe at least try two or three different options If it's a larger school, maybe it's like a university or something like that, maybe just try to try to go to that location and just look at it. Does 
Does it look like they're busy? Does it look like the people there are happy? You know, does it look like they have good maintenance? That kind of thing. Okay, so let's talk just a little bit about what an introductory flight would entail. So would anyone like to say what an introductory flight or a discovery flight was like for you? Okay, I've got this one. It depends on where you are, but a traditional type of discovery flight or introductory flight is usually about a half hour long. And sometimes it's done in a two-seat airplane. Sometimes it's done in a four-seat airplane. It might be different. But what happens is often a flight, flight instructor will meet the aspiring pilot, the client will say, and they'll maybe ask them if they live in the area so they can fly over where they live, be prepared to show the pilot on a map, perhaps. That's always helpful if you have one of those. And then normally, well, at least when I was instructing, I would let the client watch me do a pre-flight inspection of the plane. And I would tell them a little bit about it, but I wouldn't get into too many details. I would just show them enough to kind of help their curiosity and then we show a little bit about starting up the plane and taxiing out. If I was feeling confident, I might have them help me just a little bit with the rudder pedals as we taxied. I would probably still control the power because I didn't want to overwhelm them. And then I would often let them do the takeoff if I felt like they were knowing what they were doing. I'd say, okay, add full power. And then when I tell you, pull back slowly. And remember that you have to say the word slowly or else they might pull back too quickly. And I would have my hand very close to the controls so that if they pulled too far, I'd be able to stop the controls. But I would let them kind of just pull back on the controls and actually do the actual liftoff from the ground. And then after that, I would normally take the controls again for a little while because they might be a little overwhelmed and they'd be enjoying being up in the air for the first time. And then once we were at a safe altitude, maybe flying toward wherever they lived so we could fly over their house, I'd let them take the controls again and just kind of get the basic feel of the controls. And before we knew it, a half hour would be almost up and we'd have to go back and land. And also we would take also a lot of pictures, sometimes videos, anything that would help them celebrate and enjoy their flight. And of course, once they start posting that on social media, then that encourages them to come back because all their friends and family are excited and that kind of thing. So Every flight school does it differently, but that is what you might expect from a typical discovery flight. Any comments on that? It was almost a Disney experience for me. I, I, I was almost in love with that. Beautiful. So you remember yours. Yes, yes, I absolutely remember. And, and fun thing, the flight school where I did the discovery flight, my discovery flight was not the one. I never did one single flight hour with them. And the reason for that, it's because when I ran the final numbers, they were the most expensive for me. So I ended up in another place that I really liked it and was highly recommended for me as well. Uh, I cannot complain about my, my final choice at the time. But yeah, fun enough, uh, where I did my discovery flight was not the flight school where I, I, I ended up flying. So, but yeah, it was an amazing experience. It was like almost 30 minutes as well. And the flight instructor took me to, to fly around the city. And it was a really nice experience because I, I have never been around a 
a small aircraft. In this case, it was a Cessna 152. It was the first time in my life that I saw one of those. And I never saw what was coming into my life after that. That's wonderful. That's what a lot of people say. Some people say that the first time they put their hands on the controls and they felt that rush of excitement, that that was when they decided they had to be a pilot. I remember my first flights very clearly. It was a big moment. Yeah, Dana. So uh, another thing that I know, well, it happened on my discovery flight, and I know a lot of places will do is they'll give you a logbook too as part of the beat and, you know, sign off your first flight, you know, kind of contributes to the idea of, of personal accomplishment and also some accountability that you might want to finish that out and actually get your rating. Oh, that is a wonderful point. That's wonderful from a learning perspective and partly because you want to log every hour you can. And actually, that's also important from a legal perspective, because legally, technically, all flight instruction is supposed to be logged. Sometimes those flights fall under a different category called sightseeing flights. But at least in the United States, that means that there are other regulations that we don't have to go into a lot, but it involves like the company having a drug testing program and that kind of thing. Yeah, Mo. Hello. I also wanted to add that because that's the first experience of the person that is flying and there is a lot going on around them so it's better to take them in a smooth weather so they feel better because some people like feel sick or something like that also because it's like the first experience so it's better to take them in a smooth ride oh wonderful point yes The goal of that flight is to show people that it's fun and safe. And if that's their first experience on a really bumpy, turbulent day, you're right. That might not be the best first impression. First impressions are powerful. Another thought is that a lot of flight schools sell gift certificates. So maybe you are coming up on your birthday or Christmas, you could ask for a gift certificate from your family and friends as well. Okay, now that we've spoken about the basic, basic generals, like research ahead of time, interview and visit different schools and flight instructors, and then maybe take introductory flights. Now let's talk about more specific. So we're going to start by talking about the different types of licenses, and then we'll talk a little bit more about who can be a pilot. But before we go into who can be a pilot, I just want to say most people actually can be a pilot. Most people, if you have the right training and you have patience and you can get through your lessons with hard work, most people actually can be pilots. It's not like there's only a small percentage of the population with good reflexes or anything like that. If you can drive a car with enough patience, you could probably eventually learn how to fly. So I want to just kind of make sure that all of you know that that's there. Now, there's a much bigger learning curve than driving a car. It will take longer, but most people can. And again, if you can't drive a car, that's another story. Some people probably shouldn't be, but that's the small percentage. And I want you to hopefully start with the idea that you should be able to be a pilot if you apply yourself. Okay, let's start by talking about the different types of pilot certificates. And this information is on the handout that you can get from our website, landingswithaflare.com. 
So if someone is going just for a hobby, what is the most common license for them to get? Enrique? Probably a private or a light sports license. Yes, exactly. The most common one is the private pilot certificate. And the private pilot certificate means that you can't be paid to fly, but you are allowed to take passengers. Typically, it requires a minimum of 40 hours. That's an international agreement. However, that's a very old agreement. And so the average is actually much higher than that. Last I heard, it was somewhere between 60 and 70 hours as an average in the United States. And I believe it was actually closer to 70. It might even be more. Has anyone heard current averages? Enrique? Oh, the minimum 40 hours is the ICAO 1X1 requirement. From next one, it's the one regarding personal licensing. And it remains 40 hours for the private pilot level. That makes sense. Yeah, I was wondering if it was in Annex 1. That's great. So the private pilot certificate, most pilots can fly at most airports. In the United States, you can fly during the day and night. Depending on the country you're in, it might just be for the day, and then you'd have to get a little extra training for the night. And again, you can carry friends, but you cannot carry anyone for hire, and you can't carry cargo for hire. And even when you are carrying friends, there are limitations on how much you can get reimbursed. And we'll talk a lot more about this in the regulation section. But basically, we call it something called the pro rata share. If you have one friend with you, they can only reimburse you up to half of the costs, like the fuel and the oil and that kind of thing. If you have two friends with you, then they can pay up to two-thirds, but you still have to pay a third. And then it can get a lot more complicated. Like, you have to be all going to the same place, and you have to be intending to go there originally as well. You can't just take your friends to different cities and drop them off and leave. You have to be intending to go there as well and that kind of thing. So unless it's like an immediate family member. So it gets a little bit complicated, but that is the private pilot certificate. Again, minimum of 40 hours, average probably closer to 70 nowadays. Any other comments on the private pilot certificate? Uh, Captain, would you mind just me to, to sidetrack just one little bit of what you just said? Let's say that I, for example, I would like to drop my mom at work in another city and come back. Can I do that as a private pilot? Your mom is a direct family member, so that would be considered okay. But you have to be able to prove that you're not doing something called holding out to the public, which means letting just anybody fly with you. So a family member is okay or someone that you can show a very close relationship with. Oh, okay. No, that's all. That's all. Let, let, let's move on. Otherwise, we're going to lose here. Yeah. I mean, and that's a good question because if you had that question, someone else would too. So the private pilot certificate is the most basic one that a hobbyist would get. And that's where most career pilots have to start as well. There are a couple of exceptions or other hobby type certificates that someone can get. One is called the recreational license and one is called the sport pilot license. We'll touch on those just briefly and then we'll talk more about careers. 
So the recreational license is more popular in some other countries, but it's very unpopular in the United States. And basically, you have to do almost as much work as you would for a private pilot certificate, but you get fewer benefits. So that one, you can just kind of remove that from your mind. It's very rare, at least in the United States. It might be better in some other countries. Now, the sport pilot license is a bit of a tricky one. That allows you to fly certain very light aircraft. They're called light sport aircraft, LSAs. And there are a lot of rules on that. There's a weight limitation. There's only allowed to be one other passenger. And then the pilot on that one technically doesn't have to have a medical certificate. In the United States, this is mostly in the United States on this one. Um, They don't have to have a medical certificate. They just have to have a driver's license, but they also have to know that they're still healthy. But the reason that that didn't become as popular as people thought had to do, unfortunately, with the number of accidents that happened in the very light airplanes. A lot of people thought that a light, slow airplane would be safer But it's actually not. And all you have to do is ask the insurance companies because they're the ones that have the real safety statistics. So it might be the right choice for some people, especially if they have difficulty getting a medical certificate for various reasons. But the reason there were so many accident rates is that light airplanes actually are very sensitive to wind and turbulence and other variations. Imagine a tiny little boat going out on an ocean with big waves. Being in a small boat is not safer. Actually, being in a big heavy boat is actually what's safer in that condition. And that's often what happens with the small little light sport airplanes. So it can be done if it's done well and properly, but you definitely should research more about that. And again, I might be making some people angry with these statements. I'm just trying to tell you what I know. If you were my family member and I wanted to protect you and give you all the full information, does anyone want to disagree or agree or add anything? Okay, great. So the hobbyist will often get a private pilot certificate, but maybe they'll get a sport pilot certificate and very rarely they'll get a recreational certificate. So now let's talk about what a career pilot would get. They'll normally start with the private pilot certificate. They pretty much have to start with that one. Then after that, typically what they will do is get something called an instrument rating. Who would like to explain what an instrument rating is? So an instrument rating, it's a rating that allows you to fly under instrument flight rules. Oh, that's kind of obvious. And what is instrument flight rules? It's an uh, it's a kind of flight rules that allows you pretty much to fly under poor weather conditions or non-visual flight conditions. Yes. So flying on instruments is what we do when we fly in the clouds. So when you're a regular private pilot, you're allowed to fly when you can see. And we call that VFR, or visual flight rules. When you can't see and you're flying in the clouds, which is like flying in the fog, that's IFR, which is instrument flight rules. The other thing you'll notice is that aviation is full of acronyms, which are abbreviations, like the ones that we're using. Okay, so 
Then, after you learn how to fly in the clouds, which we call the instrument rating, then normally what a pilot will get after that is called the commercial pilot certificate or license. And some people abbreviate that as CPL for commercial pilot license. Technically, the government calls it a certificate and not a license. But so in this certificate, what does it and does it not allow you to do? For the commercial certificate, it's like you are getting trained to start working uh, or getting paid for flight. So let's say that you're being trained to carry passengers, like you're building up the minimum experience to safely carrying passengers or carrying cargo or other things, or bottom line, doing activities that would allow you to get paid for that. Yes. So you can get paid for certain types of flying once you get the commercial pilot certificate. But a lot of people are confused because they say, wait a second, isn't an airline pilot, a commercial pilot. And that's actually a slightly different type of terminology. So a commercial pilot, if you just have a commercial pilot certificate, normally you're actually not ready to be at the airlines yet. It means that you're ready for more, I guess you could say entry level type flying jobs. And there are a lot of restrictions on it. So it's true that as a commercial pilot, you can get paid to fly passengers and cargo for hire. But there are a lot of restrictions on it. Like, for example, uh, you have to work for a company that has certificates to offer rides to the public. You can't just offer rides to anybody. Your company has to have all sorts of certifications. There are some things that you can just do on your own. You can do aerial photography. You can do flight instruction, which is kind of on its own category almost of flying. You can do various types of firefighting, crop dusting, that means spraying crops. Uh, Let's see, what else am I missing here? Aerial survey. Aerial survey is like flying over oil pipelines or maybe working for a company that does internet mapping and you fly in grids with cameras on your planes to keep the maps that are on the internet up to date with all the pictures. So there are some jobs that you can do as soon as you get a commercial pilot certificate. Oh, you can drop skydivers. But again, you actually can't just go and take anybody anywhere. There are still really strict rules. It's not really your license that changes if you need to start flying the public for hire. It's the company that you're working for that changes at that point. And it has to do more with how the company is set up. And that is a conversation for our regulations section, which we'll be holding more in the future. But now let's say that you are ready to advance in your career, and now you want to be the captain of a jet at a major airline. The commercial pilot certificate isn't enough. What is the name of the license that you would get after that? June. I think it's a uh, ATPL. Yes, and what does that stand for? I think it's a uh, airline transport pilot license. Yes, exactly. So then you can become an ATP, airline transport pilot, and the license is often abbreviated ATPL for the license at the end. 
So that's the one to be the captain of a jet. So those are the basic licenses. Most people start with the private pilot, and then they get the instrument rating, and then from there they get a commercial certificate, and then they get the airline transport pilot ATP. And then also in there, there are other types of certifications that pilots can get. And we don't want to get too complicated, but one of them is called the multi-engine rating. What is that? June. It's uh, the rating that's allow you to fly the more than one engine, the multi-engine, but actually under the VFR rule. Yes. So multi-engine means more than one engine. And usually pilots start out in what we would call a light twin airplane. The Duchesses, the Seminoles, things like that. And so then once you learn how to fly with two engines, it's not technically considered to be a license. It's considered to be a rating, kind of like the instrument rating. But that's really important for most careers also. And Sometimes you can get that with an instrument rating attached, but you don't technically have to have the instrument rating attached. Okay, so then you can also become a flight instructor. You have to have a special certificate to become a flight instructor. What are the different types of flight instructors? June. Uh, I don't know in America. In Canada, we have class four. Class 3, Class 2, and Class 1. Oh, excellent. I'm glad you brought that up. Can you explain just a little bit about what those are? So the beginning of your instructor training and after you complete, it's a Class 4. All your instruction is under the supervision of the chief instructor or Class 2. After you get, uh, I remember it's 5 solo and 3 PPL recommendation. And you can apply for the class three, which is uh, because the class four you need uh, to do the inspection or, I mean the the check for every half year, and after class three you you have you only do that in every one year or two year. Uh, I don't remember exact date, and after that you have enough experience and time you go for the class two, which is you can supervise the class four instructor and you'll get higher pay. And after that, uh, you work up to class one, which is you can be a chief instructor and you can also become an examiner. That is excellent. Thank you so much for laying that out. Who yeah, and in, in Canada, we, we don't have the in America, like uh, if you want to teach multi or IFR, you have to specific license or rating. In Canada, no. You only requires for teaching multi is uh, have 50 hours multi. That's it. That's great. Yeah, that is one of the things that does vary from country to country. Who would like to speak about your country, Enrique? Yeah, so here in Brazil, pretty much you have just one instructor's rating. But the way that to teach instruments, multi-engine, the way that works, it's based on your actual experience, your real experience. So let's say you get your instructor's rating here and you want to teach instruments. 
And you need to be instrument rated, of course, but you need to have at least 50 hours logged on real and uh, in-command instruments on your log. You want to teach multi-engine, and you need to be multi-engine rated, of course, and you need to have at least 15 hours in command of the aircraft that the flight school has to, to teach. And that's the tricky part, because most of the flight schools, they, they have those old Piper Senecas, like Seneca 1 or Seneca 2. When it's a really good flight school, they have the Seneca 3. And who has those, those actual um, flight hours logged in command? Only the older guys. And pretty much why you see it gets restricted for those guys. And that's just Enrique's opinion. For that matter, I don't think that's really fair here in Brazil. And I believe I'm going to leave you to explain the American way, the, how the ratings work there in the United States. And I think that's um, the most fair system that we have regarding the, the instructor's ratings in the world. Just, just That's just my opinion. Wonderful. So in the United States, we have three levels. We call it CFI, which is like the basic flight instructor, CFII, which stands for Certified Flight Instructor Instrument, and then MEI, Multi-Engine Instructor. And then if you want to train other instructors, then you also have to have more experience as well. Great. Any questions or additions on the conversation for flight instructors? Oh, I want to say one thing. Some of you probably noticed I said something wrong. Most people don't know this. It's a common error. I said that CFI stands for Certified Flight Instructor. Technically, it stands for Certificated Flight Instructor. And even then, that's more of a slang term. You don't really see the government using the term certificated at all. They basically just refer to them as flight instructors. So, that is a conversation for another time if you really want to split hairs. But if you're just speaking casually, it is just fine to call a flight instructor a CFI. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about the steps to getting a private pilot certificate. I would break it into six different steps, and we'll go through those to kind of tell you what you can expect. Step number one is you learn basic skills. You learn maneuvers, landings, and some basic emergency skills. That leads you to one of the biggest points in your entire flying journey, and that is your first solo flight, where you join all of the aviators in the world by flying an airplane by yourself. I believe that less than 1% of the world's population has actually flown an airplane by themselves. So that's a pretty impressive mark right there. So step number one, learn the basics. Step number two, fly your first solo flight. It varies a lot from person to person. That can take anywhere from 15 to 30 hours and more. It just depends on where you are and, and what your type of instruction is. Then step number three is usually working on some more advanced skills, which would include night flying and instrument flying. You might have learned some of these also before the solo. It depends a lot on the type of school you're in. 
But the reason that you would typically improve your skills with night flying and instrument flying and also different types of landings called short and soft field is that they're getting you ready for the next step, which is what we would call flying cross countries. A cross country in aviation terms just means that you're landing at another airport besides yours. In order for it to count toward a lot of licensing, it usually in the United States has to be about 50 miles. I, what is that in other countries? Does anyone have a good conversion, Enrique? 25 mile, nautical miles. Oh, 25 nautical. Oh, interesting. Yeah, there are some nuances on how it's defined, and that is a conversation for advanced regulations. But, okay, so I could see that too. So the reason you're learning some basic night and instrument skills before you start flying off to different airports by yourself is because what happens if it you accidentally fly too late and it starts to get dark? Or what happens if you accidentally fly into the clouds or low visibility? They want to make sure that you have some basic skills so you can get yourself out of trouble if you get into trouble. Okay, so step one was learn the basics and learn how to land. Step two is fly your first solo flight. Step three is learn some more advanced skills like night flying and instruments. And then step four is learn how to fly cross-country flights to other airports. And then that essentially culminates or ends when you are able to do solo cross-country flights or flying by yourself to other airports. Then step five, and it might not be in this order, but you'll have to do something called passing a knowledge test. Who would like to explain what the knowledge test is? And it does vary a bit. So back to the whole NX1 um, conversation that we just had a few minutes ago. According to them, in order to get any certificate, you need to have a, a written test that would be your knowledge test. So it's a test where uh, varies from countries to countries, but usually it's a multiple question um, I don't know, uh, at least here in Brazil, it's 100 questions um, that varies between five subjects, um, 20 questions per subject, and you need to have a practical test. In this case, that would be your check ride on, on your practical side. And the requirements to, to do those also varies from countries to countries. That's allowed by the Annex 1 rules. So in some countries, you need to go to a ground school on a certified by the authority. In other countries, you don't need to go to an actual course on a ground school. You can just go and get your, your, your knowledge test or your written test. And there, uh, there's also the, the rules to certify the flight schools to get your practical um, training and the rules to get your practical test as well. That's a good summary. And it definitely varies from country to country, but pretty much every country has some type of academic test, which is usually multiple choice. And it can be on a lot of different subjects. I believe in Europe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's 14 subjects and it's common to pass all of those tests before even 
Is it- no, I think the 14 uh, subjects, it's for the ATPL. I don't know about the private level. I know for sure that's for the ATPL, but I think that 14 subjects for a private pilot, that's too much. Oh, okay. Thank you for saying that. Does anyone else want to speak about in their country what the knowledge test is like? It used to be called the written exam, but when people started switching more to computers to take the tests, at least in the United States, the government decided that it was better to call it the knowledge test. Okay, great summary. So I said that that was step five. Again, there are a lot of recommendations about how people should complete their knowledge test maybe early on in their training or at least before they do their solo cross country. Depending on who you ask, some people say you should do the whole knowledge test before you even start to fly. But I personally believe that that's difficult because you don't have that practical experience. At that point, you might just be memorizing the answers without understanding it as much. So you will find many different opinions on that. But pretty much everyone agrees that you should not leave it for the last minute. There are a lot of study aids on the internet. There are applications that you can download for your phone. There are many great online ground schools. We have links to some of them on the website, Landings with a Flare as well. Enrique? No, I just would like to remember that as we are speaking to an international audience, It's always nice to check on your local regulations because, for example, again, here in Brazil, you cannot do your solo flight if you don't have your written test pass it. So you cannot um, do your solo flight on your private um, training if you did not pass on your knowledge test. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. I'm trying to learn also. And I, I do kind of apologize because a lot of what I'm saying is coming from the United States perspective. And sometimes you'll hear us saying the words FAA, Federal Aviation Administration. That's the government agency in the United States. But nearly every country has their own governing authority for aviation. And I, I'm really glad when people help broaden the conversation besides just the United States. So thank you for that. Okay, the last step, the last big step that you have to do to get a private pilot certificate is to take something called the practical exam, which is a flying test. And a lot of times the slang is that it's called a check ride. It's actually not just a flying test. It starts with something called the ground portion, which used to be called the oral exam. And basically what it means is that you sit with a special examiner and they ask you questions to determine whether or not you are ready to fly and whether or not you have the knowledge. And then once you do a good job on the ground answering questions, then you are ready to go and fly. We know mostly what's going to be on the test. And this is important because you can do a lot of practice tests. I like to call them dress rehearsals ahead of the test. So different government agencies have different written out rules. In the United States, it's called the Airman Certification Standards or the ACS. And it tells you what has to be tested and it tells you the standards that it has to be tested to. Now, there will be some variation a little bit depending on the examiners, but the government does work very hard to standardize it. Are there any other key points 
about those tests that we should tell new pilots? Mo, go ahead. So I have a tip for the private pilots. So in your check ride, if you don't know something, you don't have to know everything. First of all, you have to know that you don't have to know everything. But if there is something that you have to know, but you don't remember, don't throw things on the table. Just say, I don't know, and I'm going to look it up. So it's better to know where to find everything. So if you don't know something, just don't throw ideas on the table and say, hey, I don't know the answer of that, but I can look it up for you. So the the examiner is going to be more happier when you say, I don't know it, but I'm going to look it up instead of like just giving some random ideas. Very nice. All right. So just to review what we said, on steps to getting a private pilot license, you learn the basics, then you fly solo by yourself. You learn more advanced skills like night and instrument flying and some other kinds of landings. And then you fly cross-country flights to other locations. You have to take some kind of government knowledge test. And then you take the big test at the end. This is Captain Teresa. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you were one of the people being recorded, I thank you. If you were one of the people that we edited out of this recording, I beg your forgiveness. There were many reasons that this episode may have been edited, including length, audio quality, and accuracy. We don't always have the right answers. I ask you to view this as entertainment and not as a replacement for formal instruction or advice. If you want to send constructive feedback or if you have questions, feel free to contact us through our website, landingswithaflare.com. You can view announcements on our Instagram account, Landings with a Flare. You can also join our live conversations on Clubhouse in the club pilot flight training. If you got value out of this podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a positive review. Wherever you are in the world, we wish you happy landings.